am so excited to be with you guys this morning. I have heard that this service is the best service of the day. And so you guys, look, you can't disappoint. I've been looking forward to to this service with you guys. I am so honored to be with you. I do not take it lightly. Um, when I was back uh, last year with your single moms and had the honor of getting to know some of the ladies here in the house, and then over the last couple of days to have met your pastoral team and, and to fellowship with them and just how genuine they are and for their hearts for you guys. And so I just want to honor your pastors for their 31 years of service and for their heart for single moms specifically. So can you help me honoring them? Thank you so much for having me. I truly am. It's been an honor to get to know you. And so um, I am like every other mama. I have to share a little bit about my family and my children. I have been married almost 14 years this year to a wonderful husband, Jeff, who is truly um, just a supporter and just praise for you guys as if he was here. And so I just want to honor him a moment in his absence. But um, I have to tell you, my family, my mother's family is from East Texas, and then I have my father's family is from Mississippi. And so I had no choice but to have this cute little southern accent that you hear. So I apologize to you in advance. Uh, most people I tell, the more that I speak and the more excited that I become, the more southern I will become. Most of you will probably need a translator by the time I'm finished with you. So I'm just sorry. The Holy Spirit will speak to your heart because you won't understand a thing I'm saying in a few minutes. But um, I have three wonderful children. My son Dylan is 21. He is a junior in college, and he is uh, playing basketball basketball actually here in Texas. And then my daughter Ashton is 19. She is a sophomore at LSU in Baton Rouge where I make my home. And then I have little Miss Adrian who is 10 years old. She's in the fourth grade. And I say that the Lord gave me Adrian during a time in my life when I was in the midst of parenting teenagers so that I would remember that I actually do love children. Now, if you have not parented teenagers before, you really don't know what I'm talking about. If you have small children, you need to start praying now for those children because the teenage years are a very difficult time. But um, I always tease my kids in saying that they're all fantastic, fantastic kids and truly a blessing from the Lord. But um, I have the great privilege of, of serving with a ministry called the Life of a Single Mom Ministries. And we minister to about 50,000 single mothers each year through support groups. We work with a little over 1,500 churches around the globe in helping single mothers get connected to the local body of Christ. So I want to read to you a few things now. I will tell you I'm not going to camp out on single parenthood today, um, so I don't want to lose any of you guys, but I want you to just hear a few things that the single parent home is facing. It is the fastest growing demographic in our country. There are 15 million single mothers in the United States and that number continues to rise. They are raising about 25 million children. 49% of all babies today are being born outside of marriage, which means that a child is just as likely to be born outside of marriage as within. 50% of today's marriages are continuing to fail, whether they are Christian or non-Christian homes. The statistics that show what these single mothers are facing are sometimes overwhelming. 78% of our current prison population in the United States was raised by a single mom. Almost everybody that is in prison today. One in three single moms lives below the poverty line. 
75% of all of the government assistance in the nation is being used by single-parent families. Abuse is twice as likely in a single mom's home as a two-parent family. The child of a single mom is 10 times more likely to drop out of high school. They're five times more likely to commit suicide. And those are some pretty staggering statistics. But perhaps the saddest thing of all is that two out of three single moms in the nation don't go to church anywhere. So here we have the fastest growing demographic in the country and they don't see the local church as a place to call home, a place of solace, of freedom, and of hope. And church, I'm here to tell you that is not a single mom's problem. That is a body of Christ problem. And so it is the very issue that keeps me up at night. It is the thing that the Lord has impassioned me with. It is the thing that I believe he has sent me here to tell you. All of us know a single mom. All of us know someone in our lives, our family, our places of employment, or our church that could use a little bit of encouragement. And I would tell you for every single mom that is sitting in the service today, there are two others that are not yet here. And so we need to begin to reach outside of those walls. Now, single moms, listen to me. I know that there are some of you in the room today and you think, well, gosh, they brought in this single parenting expert to talk, and so I came in hopes of being encouraged this morning. And the first thing that she does in the first five minutes is tell me all of the negative things that my home is facing. I've got good news for you, Mama. Your God is far bigger than any statistic written on a sheet of paper. There is nothing that I just read to you, nothing at all that you cannot overcome through the blood of the Lamb. And so I see that every single day. Our God is in a position to shatter statistics, and it's what he enjoys doing on a regular basis. So everything I just said to you does not mean this is what your home has to become. And you need to understand that if you don't remember anything else that I say today. Now, why would I, a white girl who looks like Mary Poppins from suburbia, be very interested in sharing with you all of these things. So I already know that that's what you might think about me if you don't know anything at all about me. I share those things because I lived through each one of those statistics. And what I'd like to do for a few moments this morning is share with you a little bit about what God has brought me through in hopes of encouraging someone in this room. And even if this message is just for one person, it's worth it for all of us to be here. My earliest memory when I was about three years old, I'd heard something in the kitchen and I was awakened in the middle of the night and I stumbled down the hallway upon a scene that I will never forget. My dad was leaned over the kitchen sink and there was blood pouring down his head, his face and his neck. Now as a little girl of three years old, I can tell you it terrified me as it would many of you even as adults. There were family friends and neighbors at the home and there was a lot of hustle and bustle going on in the kitchen. I really had no idea what had happened, but I was terrified. It was not long before someone noticed me and they ushered me back to bed. And in the middle of the night, I lay there awake wondering if my dad would be dead or alive the next morning. Now, I would love to tell you that that incident in my life was just a one-time thing and that overall my life was fairly normal. The truth of the matter is my life was anything but normal. My life was filled with weird incidents like that. In fact, no one ever spoke about what happened that night, and it was only years later that I learned that my dad had been driving drunk. He drove off into a ravine, wrecked his vehicle, and busted his head open, and the family was stitching him up at home in hopes of avoiding prosecution by local authorities. 
That happened many, many times. You see, my mother had been killed about a year and a half prior to that incident. And so my dad was struggling with the death of a wife that died at 32 years old very unexpectedly. And he used alcohol and women to self-medicate. So he was an alcoholic from the time that I can remember on through his death some years ago. He also married a total of six times. That does not include the number of girlfriends and mistresses that he had in between and during the marriages. And so, as you may imagine, my home was a revolving door of misfits of every kind. And I don't mind telling you that my dad didn't have the best taste in women, and so many of those stepmothers were very abusive. They did not love me. In fact, they resented me for myself and my twin sister represented the love that my dad had for another woman. And it was a difficult time. When I was three years old, that same year of that incident I just shared with you, I also began being sexually assaulted. And for nine years at the hands of a lot of people in my life, in fact, probably too many to name, I was abused. I tell you that to say that there are so many unspeakable things that happened. In fact, if I shared with you the details, most of you probably could not stomach to hear it. If you can imagine it, it's probably happened to me. Throughout those same years, I was also forced to steal. I was forced to view pornography, physically held down at a very young age. On and on and on, the story goes. It was a difficult time, and by the time I was 13 years old, I was so desperate for somebody to love me. I was so desperate for somebody to give me value, to tell me that I was worth something, that I gave myself sexually for the first time in a relationship at only 13 years old. And it breaks my heart to tell you that today, having raised children now and, and going through the preteen years with my own daughter, that I would have thought so little of my own value and worth that I would have done that. And I jumped from one relationship to another, hoping that someone could give me value. In the meantime, I was a classic overachiever in every way. From the time I was in elementary and middle school on through high school, I won every award you can think of. I was a straight-A student. You see, perfectionism is also a bondage. Maybe if I was good enough, if I was perfect enough, if I got the best grades, then maybe someone would love me. Someone would tell me at school, a teacher, an administrator, that I was good enough. And so I worked very hard there. In fact, I graduated high school valedictorian. I graduated class president. I had scholarships to go to colleges all over the country. I was on the homecoming court. I was sweetheart queen. You name it, I achieved it. And it was in hopes that someone would love me. And the interesting thing about my story is that it was never a head issue. You see, I was always a smart girl. There are some of you right now that have family members and you're wondering why on earth that woman keeps going back to that dead-end relationship. Why does that woman keep taking abuse? Why does that person keep making a poor decision? It is never a head issue. It is almost always certainly a heart issue. And so I stumbled through life for many years trying to find my way. It was in my high school years that I met what would become my high school sweetheart at 15 years old. I was in my sophomore year. He was Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome, and he was the captain of the basketball team. And so I thought that I would have the Romeo and Juliet scenario, and I began dating him through the course of high school. I got pregnant twice in high school. Both times I had miscarriages, and not another soul knew about it. 
The third time I got pregnant, I was a senior in high school, and I hid the pregnancy for six months. In fact, I really hoped that it would go away. I hoped that if I did not acknowledge it, that it would just somehow disappear and I wouldn't have to deal with the consequences. I turned 18 in June of my senior year after graduation, and I was over at a friend's house, and I called my dad on the phone to tell him I was pregnant. For you see, I strategically waited until I was 18, and I was not in his presence, as I was fearful of what he may do to me. I called him, and I told him that I was pregnant. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Of course, he was devastated and disappointed, and his exact words to me were, have a nice life and he hung up the phone on me. I was never permitted to live in my family home again. I was not permitted to get my things, and so here I was at 18 years old, six, six months pregnant. I had nowhere to go. I was living in the back of my car. I had never had prenatal care, and I didn't have a friend on the earth, it seemed like. And a family in town wound up taking me in. In fact, it was a, a friend of mine's family, and they became uh, like a second family to me. But it was a dark and lonely time. It was the first time that I had ever been separated from my twin sister who wound up going out of state to college. And it was the first time I had been separated from my boyfriend who wound up getting a scholarship and going several states away to school. And so here I was alone, and I had no one. I gave birth to that little boy, um, and 10 days later, I wound up getting a job. I worked full-time, I wound up going to school full-time at night, and I moved into the projects on food stamps and welfare. It was all I could do to make ends meet. It was a very difficult time, and my car, my little beat-up car, left me on the side of the road at least once a week. In fact, I used to have to put a quart of oil in it every morning to even get to work. Um, it was so hard. And I felt like I was the only one. And you see, Satan is masterful at telling us we're the only one enduring whatever circumstance it is that we're going through. And he whispered in my ear for many years that I didn't fit in and that I didn't belong anywhere. I was going through this time of having a job and, and having a little bit of furniture that people had blessed me with. And, and way off in the distance, I could see a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, it was not luxurious living by any stretch of the imagination. It was all I could do to make ends meet, but I could see the light. I was going to make it. It wasn't the way my life had planned on going. It wasn't what I had hoped for myself, but I was going to make it. I was going to be okay. Then my boyfriend of seven years came home on college break, and I got pregnant a fourth time. Church, I can't even tell you the shame that I felt the embarrassment that I felt of making the same choice again and again and again. And so I hid that pregnancy for almost seven months. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't tell anyone that had maybe helped me. The few people in my life that had helped me and maybe given me a piece of furniture or done something for me, how could I tell them that I had done this again? And so I gave birth to that little baby girl, Ashton, who is now 19, on a, on a Friday. And I actually went back to work on Monday. Now, the thing of it was is that I didn't have a rich uncle that I could borrow money from, so if I didn't work, my children did not eat. And so I went back to work two days later. I put that baby girl in an at-home daycare with my son, and, and it was a difficult time, and I was working full-time during the week. I was going to college full-time during the week, and then I was working a second job on the weekends. And many times people ask me, how on earth did you survive? I have no idea. 
I cannot remember many of those years. My children will sometimes sometimes ask me now things like, you know, when was the first time I took my, my first step? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't even remember you until you were like four years old. Truly, I don't. It was by God's grace alone that I survived. It was difficult. Well, it was in the period of that seven-year relationship and in this period of time that I was also enduring difficulties within the relationship. You see, the father of my children also had multiple of other children the same age as my children. In addition to that, he physically abused me on a regular basis. And so he had been over at my apartment one night and trashed my apartment and abused me. I don't even remember about what. And he left. And I was huddled on the bathroom floor in my little 400-square-foot apartment in the projects. And I had my face pressed against that cold floor, certain that God did not exist. I was crying out to a God that I was certain could not possibly love me because how, if God existed, could he allow me to go through everything that I had gone through? It was the closest I've ever been to suicide. The only reason I did not commit suicide was because I knew what it was like to be raised without a mother, and I did not want my children to experience the same thing. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but my heart was so broken that my chest physically ached, and I wanted someone to rescue me. My little boy, who was about 18 months old to 24 months old at the time, came toddling in the bathroom, and I remember him patting me on my back and saying, it's okay, Mama. And I looked in the eyes of that little boy and I realized everything that I had experienced in my own life, in my own childhood, I was now duplicating in my home. So the brokenness, the disappointment, the dysfunctional family, the abuse that my children had seen me go through, and I was even beginning to abuse my children in some ways, I was doing that same thing to them. And so I made a decision on that bathroom floor that night that I would go to church the next morning. I hadn't been to church in some time, and I really didn't feel like I fit in there anywhere. The churches were small, and, and my children were biracial, which meant back 21 years ago, none of the churches were integrated in rural Louisiana. And so even Satan allowed that to be uh, something in my life that kept me away from church. But I did go. It was all I could do to get into the church, and I sat on the back row, and I had my two little children in tow, and I was certain with all of the sin that I had in my life that the walls of the church were going to cave down around me. I was certain that the spotlight was on my left hand and that there were people in the church staring at me, and they automatically knew that I had had those children outside of marriage and, and that they were going to judge me for that. In fact, I actually left before service was even completely over because I was so embarrassed. And I'd love to tell you that the preacher preached some life-transforming message that day and my life was forever changed. It did not happen that way. But what happened was I made a decision that I would go back again because you see, when you have no money and no friends and no hope, that is very often when the Lord can speak to you. And so I came into the church thinking, well, maybe the church folks could help me. That's how desperate that I was. And so I began going to church fairly regularly, and I wound up going three to five times a week, and I actually got pretty comfortable there. In fact, I had my little space, my little chair in the regular section each Sunday, and I was beginning to make a few friends and feel like this may be church home for me. 
there was still a lot of dysfunction going on in my life. I want to tell you that just because I was beginning to have this, this revelation of who the Lord was, it didn't mean that I immediately laid down all of the other poor choices I had made. And so actually I was the first one in church on Sunday mornings, but I was the last one in the club on most Saturday nights. I was doing those things, and the reason that I tell you that, and my boyfriend was still living with me and sleeping over and all those things, and the reason I tell you that, because I don't have to tell you that, is simply because I want you to understand that there may be someone in your life right now that you're believing God for, and maybe she's even attending church, or, or he's coming to church kind of regularly, but you don't really see the fruit yet. I'm here to tell you that every seed planted will eventually grow, and it's not our responsibility to know the when or the how. And so I just want to encourage you as a church to be persistent and faithful to those people that God has planted in your life. And so I'd gotten very comfortable in church. And then do you know what the pastor had nerve enough to preach on? Tithing. Oh, no, he didn't. Tithing. Are you kidding? Here I am making $450 a month, living in the projects on food stamps and welfare. I'm a single mom. I have nothing to give to anyone, and this man has nerve enough to talk to me about giving my money to the church. I was so mad. I can remember sitting in the church pew with my arms crossed, and I was just as mad as I could be. And I thought to myself, why don't someone go ahead and put the money in the offering bucket and give this man the new truck that we know that this is all about anyway? Now, I know church folks never have that thought, but just bear with me a minute. I don't want to lose you on this. And so here I am, and, I, and so for six months after that, I could not get this idea of tithing off my mind. You know, I was raised in church. In fact, what's so interesting about my story, considering everything I just told you about my childhood, is that my dad was a deacon in the local church for many years. And so we moved every time my dad remarried. No one had any idea how dysfunctional my home was. And so after six months of the Lord messing with me, I gave him my tithe. I did not do so as a cheerful giver. In fact, when they brought the offering bucket around, I was madder than a hornet that I had to write out the check, but the Lord would not leave me alone. And he won the argument as he very often does. And I wrote the check out and I dropped it in the offering bucket and I just said to myself, there, God. Again, I know you have no idea what I'm talking about. But let me tell you what God did over the course of the next several months and years. I had been making about $450 a month, and then through the next several months, I got a new job, and I was making $900 a month. Now, I understand that $900 a month is not a lot of money to raise two children on, but it was double the income that I had been making. And see, what happened is, is because I was faithful with a little, the Lord began to give me increase. And so that's a word for somebody in this house today is that you need to understand you're praying for God to give you some big things and bless your finances, but you won't be faithful with the little. And no, the pastor did not ask me to share that. I'm a living testimony of what God will do when you honor him in every area of your life. And so I began to give, and, and I landed this job in corporate America, for which by all accounts I was not qualified for. In fact, when I went to the interview, I didn't even know what the people did. I heard they were paying $24,000 a year, and I said, I don't actually know what you guys do, but you're paying $24,000 a year, and I can learn anything, and so I'm just, I don't even know why they gave me the job. But I became very successful in corporate America, climbing the corporate ladder. In fact, I became one of the most successful women for that Fortune 500 company that the region had ever seen. And it's by God's grace and mercy. But it was during that time that I relocated um, out of the town that I was living in. I had broken up with my boyfriend multiple times over the course of the relationship. 
And I continued to go back to him over and over and over because, you see, I secretly still had this hope that I would have my white picket fence and my happily ever after. I wanted my children to have their dad, and I wanted them to have the complete family that I had never had myself. So I relocated to another town, and I was sitting in church, and I was praying, Lord, please change his heart. Even though we were broken up and even though we weren't together, I was still hoping. And so I kept saying that, Lord, change his heart, change his heart, change his heart. Make him want the things of you because I legitimately wanted to serve the Lord. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, stop praying for me to change his heart. Start praying for me to change yours. And it was in those moments over the course of several weeks and months that the Lord broke the chains of that relationship that I was spiritually tied to for many years off my life. And I was able to move on with my life. And I came to a place where I was 100% content being alone, which is a great place to be. It's the position where the Lord can use you because, you see, I had convinced myself that no good Christian man would ever want me with my ready-made family and all the drama that I brought from my past and the abuse and the brokenness. What good Christian man would ever want me? It was in that time that the Lord brought me my husband. We actually worked together. He, he tells the kids I used to smooch him in the back office, which is absolutely not true. He likes to believe. He remembers it quite differently than I do. I say he pursued me until I just ultimately had to give up. But um, he uh, adopted my two children, and we shared the third child that I, that I um, told you about together. And we did have kind of the happily ever after. We did have all of the things that I'd kind of hoped and dreamed for. But the Lord never allowed me to forget what it was like to be that single mom huddled on that bathroom floor feeling like no one saw me and no one understood the Lord never allowed me to forget what it was like to have no money and no friends and to feel like that the church would never actually accept you if you were honest about the things you were struggling with and battling with. And so, 10 years ago in January, I walked into my local church and I said, I think I'm supposed to be doing something for single mamas. I don't, I don't really know what, I don't know what that looks like, but um, could I do something? And I started a little Bible study in my home with three single moms. And that Bible study in the course of about six months to a year grew from three single moms to 75 single moms. And I thought, well, this is bigger than I thought that it was going to be. So we moved out of my house and we moved into the church. And that single moms ministry today has a little over 500 single moms that are on the, on the roster there at that single moms ministry in Baton Rouge. And I still serve there. But the Lord also began to bring more churches to me that wanted to have this idea about how could we minister to our single mothers better? How could we duplicate something similarly in our church? And that's really how the life of a single mom ministries was born, was out of this heart of seeing that no single mom would walk alone. And so God has used me, but I have a very specific thing that I want to share with you in my last few moments about my testimony and what the Lord taught me through that testimony. And I was looking back over notes very often when you travel as much as I do, you might share the same message a few different times to encourage the body of Christ, but this particular message is just for you. It's one that I began to write before I came here, and I looked back over my notes, and one of the things that was a central theme was on battles, on battling well. How do we battle well? What do we do when we're fearful? What do we do when the battle seems too big? And so the thing that the Lord taught me through my testimony is that you better get really good at battling well. Jesus said that in this world we would have troubles, though it's always fascinating to me that Christians are just stunned whenever he sucker punches you. 
It's almost as if we are immobilized whenever we go through a battle. I spoke to your single moms in May of last year. In August of last year, I had been invited, invited in to speak to a single mom's group in Houston, Texas. And so I'd gone and I did a two-day conference there, and, and it was a wonderful time in the Lord, and we encouraged and empowered these single moms. But meanwhile, in Baton Rouge, there were reports that there was some flooding that was taking place on the outskirts of the city. And so I really didn't think a lot of it. I don't live anywhere near a body of water, and there are times in um, southern Louisiana when flooding does take place. And so I began to position myself to minister to those that might be affected. We drove back on a Saturday night, and at 3 o'clock the next morning, I received a phone call from a friend of mine who lived around the corner, and she said, Jennifer, you need to get up. Your neighborhood's flooding. And so I got up in the middle of the night and I rushed out the front door and I looked out and water was pouring into my neighborhood as if someone had turned on a faucet and was filling a bathtub. I mean, that is literally how quickly it was coming into the neighborhood. It was, it was unimaginable. And so within 20 minutes, I had awakened my entire family and we packed up what few little things that we had. And we rushed out. In fact, the water rose so quickly in 20 minutes that we almost could not get our vehicles out. And we drove out of the neighborhood watching neighbors of ours who just refused to leave. They didn't think we would flood. They didn't think it would get that bad. Within 24 hours, I lost everything that I've ever owned. And I tell you that to say to you, 20 years ago, I was living in the back of a car as a homeless single mom. 20 years later, I was homeless once again by the great flood of Baton Rouge that hit in 2016. And the God that was faithful to me then is the same God that has been faithful to me today. He has not changed, and that's good news for every single one of you here. And so lest you think that because I got married or lest that you think because I got a good job in corporate America or because maybe my children are now grown or that I'm in full-time ministry, that life has been easy, it has not. But you see, I have positioned myself to learn how to battle well. And that's the word for the church today, is that you need to learn what it is to battle well. And I have a few specific things I want to tell you about that. And the first one is, you need to recognize that you are not helpless. Too many folks in the body of Christ are walking around completely helpless. As if you don't have help from the local body, as if you don't have help from the creator of heaven and earth. And so I want to read to you a reminder, many of you will know this scripture, but I want to read to you a reminder in Psalm 121 verses 1 through 8. There may be someone sitting in the audience today and you say, that's me, I feel pretty helpless today with what I've been facing. I look up to the mountains does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. There are some of you that when I shared my testimony, you say, Jennifer, that is my story. Everything that you're saying right now are things that I've experienced in my own life, and it's been very difficult to move past that. There are others of you that could not fathom the difficulties that I've gone through in my childhood and in my life. But I do know this, that there are many of you, where, wherever you fall on that spectrum, that may be facing a different type of battle today. 
And maybe you're not in the midst of a battle right now, but you one day will be. And so what you have to do is learn to position yourself to battle well and recognize that you aren't helpless. The second thing that you need to know is that you are not hopeless. Hopeless means that you have no hope. Your situation is beyond God's comprehension, and that is not even possible. And so you must understand, in fact, Paul writes well in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. This is an interesting verse. Did you see that Paul didn't say, I pray that you get hope? Paul actually didn't write that at all. He says, I pray that you will understand the hope that you already have. He says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with the light so that you can understand your confident hope. Perhaps the saddest thing to me is that there are many Christians that I know in my own life and many around the country that have accepted the Lord as their Savior. They recognize their need for a Savior. They've repented and they've come to Him. And yet they live for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years in all the bondages that Satan had you in before you got saved. The Word says that Jesus came that we might have abundant life. There are some people in the house right now that you are saved and that you've been faithful and you've been committed, but for whatever reason you've walked around hopeless, for whatever reason you've been in bondage of something that has been difficult to break off of you, my hope for you today is that you would have the expectation that the Lord could do that in a moment in this service. The next thing that I will tell you is if you want to battle well, you need to get really good at serving others. Now, I understand that this is a foreign concept. When you're in the middle of the battle of your life, it is very unlikely that the first thing you think about is, who can I serve in this situation? Of course not. It's hard, and you're only looking at what you're going through. You're looking in the valley. But the interesting thing about the valley is it's where the Lord positions us for our best miracles. You see, all of us want to constantly be on the mountaintop. The problem is that most of us don't want to be in a position for a miracle, even though we love when he does them in our lives. And so we have to think about who is it in our lives that we can serve. And there's for a couple of reasons that this is true. One is that you need to be able to look around at other people who have been where you've been and they've made it out successfully. And so that comes through service at your local church and your community. Continuing to push through during that time will help you survive the battle. The other thing that it does is it shifts your perspective. And so nothing about your battle may change while you're in the middle of serving someone else. But what will happen is all of a sudden the Lord will use that and shift your perspective and you will begin to understand that your life is not just about you. You will understand that your life is much bigger than you. Your survival as a Christian is about thriving with the blood of the Lamb. It's not just about living a mere existence. It's about abundant, wide-open, spacious living. It's about bringing people into the fold. And guess what? This is about us going beyond the walls to get the folks that are not yet here in. And so it, that's what's at stake. You have to battle well so that others who are going through a battle who don't yet know the Lord can all of a sudden see, well, she has a hope that I can't even explain. He's got a peace that surpasses all understanding. In the middle of what they're going through, they should definitely turn their back on the church, but they didn't. And so that comes through serving others. The last thing that I will tell you is that if you want to battle well, you better be ready for war. 
You see, we understand that there are going to be battles that come. In fact, many of you have faced so many challenges in your life already, but you better get ready for war if you want to learn how to battle well. You know, Revelations 12, 11 says that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the power of their testimony. Some of you in the middle of the wilderness right now are developing your testimony. And you don't understand why you're facing what you're facing. I don't either. But I know that when you get to the other side of what you're going through, there is going to be a story that you're going to be able to bless someone else with. I want to finish with this scripture in Joshua 1, starting in verse 2. It says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land that I'm giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses, wherever you set foot, you will be on the land that I have given you. From the Negev wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean in the west, including all the land of the Hittites, no one will ever be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous. For you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. You see, church, Joshua was in a very unique position. You see, Moses was the one that had been called to lead the Israelites to the promised land. He saw miracles. He saw God part the Red Sea. He saw manna rain down from heaven. He believed that he was the one. And then he passed away, and here was Joshua never expecting to have to lead the people. And that's a word for you to understand. You may be positioned in a place you never expected to be in. But you see, Joshua was ready. And that's what the body of Christ has to be, is constantly ready for the war. Because we know that the end result is that the victory has already been won, but it's what we do in the war that's going to count. It's what we do in the war that's going to make a difference to the unsaved. It's what we do in the war that's going to save the children that are lost. It's what we do in the war that is going to show those fatherless children what it is to be a man of God whenever they grow up. It's what we do in the war that counts, and so you need to battle well. And so in closing, I would ask each of you to stand as I pray over you. As I was traveling here, I was thinking about how we would close our time together and what that would look like and really believe that the Lord wants me to pray very specifically over those of you that are in a battle that you did not expect to face. Very specifically, a battle that you're in that you did not expect to face. There are some of you that are facing battles that nobody else knows about right now. I'm talking to you. There's some of you that your financial battle has been going on for 10 years and you don't understand why because you have been faithful, you have been to church, you have tithed, you have served, and you don't understand why this is for you. And so I would ask all of you to close your eyes for just a moment. And here's what I'd like to do. If you're in the, in the middle of a battle right now, I just want you to slip your hand up so that I know who I'm praying for. If there's anyone in the room that is in the middle of a battle, and you need some help. You need a touch from God right now to get you through it. Only a miracle of God is going to sustain you during this time. I'm talking to you. I want you to begin to move out of your seats, and I want you to move forward. This is between you and God. This is not about you and your sisters in Christ that might be sitting next to you. I want you down in the front because I want to see who it is that I'm praying for. And this is about you making a line in the sand for Satan. 
And you're saying, you know, you got me the other day. You got me last year. You got me last week. But I'm drawing the line in the sand right now. And I want the rest of the church folks to know. And church, I just want you to clap your hands. It takes a lot of courage for them to step out of their seats and come forward. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray right now. I want all of you guys to lift your hands. Church, if you're not up here, then I want you to stretch your hands toward these people. And I want you to believe God for them because you might be going through a similar battle soon. Father, I thank you right now that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword and it brings life to us, Father. I thank you, God, that there are some folks in the room that just needed to be reminded who you are and what you can do in the midst of circumstances beyond their comprehension. God, I thank you that even in the midst of battles that are unbelievably difficult, Father, that you can step in and you can do what only you could do. And so, Lord, right now I pray that you would refresh your people. I pray right now that you would give them peace that surpasses understanding some of them just need to have your peace. I pray that it would be tangible in this moment for them, God, that they would walk out of here lighter. God, your word says that your burden is easy and your yoke is light, and yet so many times we are carrying a burden that we were never intended to carry. And so, Father, right now, forgive us for that. Forgive us that we tried to carry something that we weren't intended to carry. Lord, we lay it at your feet right now. God, we pick it up and we put it back down and we say, God, only you, and we trust you and we'll walk with you the rest of our days an enemy you are now on notice you are now on notice that we battle with the one that has already won the victory and maybe you lied in our ear for a season but no more we stand courageously and boldly and so God there's some in the house that have been battling fear father I pray right now that they would stand in wisdom they would stand in strength and they would not look back another day there are some in this house that are battling a secret sin and father I pray in a moment you would break it off of them in Jesus name father I speak freedom over this house right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.